Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and yet again, another insane week with coronavirus and the economy and Donald Trump and just all of it. Uh, last week when we uh, we recorded, we were just approaching 200,000 people who had the virus in the world, and uh, today it's just past half a million. I'm sure by next week it will be double that, and and so on. Um, I have two guests today. Uh, we are recording remotely, so sometimes the interviews are a little choppy, but hang with me on that one. My first guest is uh, Gabe Sherman, who's going to join us from Connecticut, uh, and he has been doing a lot of reporting on you know, what's been happening inside the White House, how the Trump administration is handling the coronavirus, You know what you've been hearing around Jared getting involved and Pence and so on and so forth. Uh, he also is going to kind of explain how this helps or hurts or God knows what it does to Trump's re-election bid. You know, his uh, approval ratings are up, which is kind of terrifying, but it also depends who you ask. Uh, after that, I'm really excited to welcome Don Winslow to the show. He is an incredibly accomplished uh, crime and mystery writer. He's written more books than I could list on this podcast if I had the time to do so. Uh, he, just an amazing, amazing writer. Uh, you have without question read one of his books over the years. He's been writing novels since the early 90s. Don is a, um, uh, he's quite vociferous when it comes to politics on social media. Uh, and he just has a new book out and he's kind of going to talk about how difficult it is to go on book tour when you can't go on book tour, uh, and his viewpoints as someone who has kind of been paying attention to everything that's going on and, and following the Trump administration for so long, what he thinks is going to happen, not only with the coronavirus, but also with the Trump administration. And so uh, two very exciting, fun conversations, sometimes a little terrifying. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump in. Gabe, welcome back to the show under very, very strange circumstances. How's it going where you are? Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm in uh, Connecticut. You're in uh, California, so I think we're socially distant enough to do this. <laughs> um, I hope we can't get sick over the uh, over the phone and the podcasting equipment. Um, so it, I, as we've all kind of been talking about for the past couple of weeks, it seems like the last... It seems like every day is like a year's worth of news. It's almost like it, it's it's even speeding up even quicker now. Um, and one of the things that I think has been so fascinating with Trump is that he he had this moment, this very very brief moment where he seemed. I hate to use the word presidential, but he actually seemed, maybe it was like 24 hours, I don't even know how long it was, where he seemed like he understood the severity of it. And then he just kind of has gone off the rails since. What the hell is going on inside the White House with Trump and Kushner and all these people uh, that are trying to kill us, essentially? Well, I think you need to sort of look at all of this from the starting point of, you know, Trump is always going to default to rage politics and picking fights and 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 tweeting at all hours of the night. So that's that's just where he naturally is going to go. And yeah, as you point out, there will be times where he'll he'll, you know, move veer away from that, but it's it's just it's like this black hole of gravity that just sucks him back. He can't not help himself. So um so what I'm hearing is that, you know, there has been 
you know, for a while now, um, a, a, a big effort from people around Trump to convince him of the seriousness of, um, of the coronavirus. Uh, and, you know, it's been reported, I reported and others, that Tucker Carlson went to Mar-a-Lago on the weekend of March 16th and, you know, sat down with Trump and told him that he, uh, he needs to take this seriously. It's not a partisan witch hunt, uh, which is what Trump and other right-wing figures had been calling the coronavirus. And, you know, I've also heard that Hope Hicks in her role back at the White House is now also trying to uh, advise uh, Trump to, you know, strike a more somber, uh, sincere tone when talking about uh, the crisis. And I think we'll, we see some of this, you know, at the top of these ridiculous press conferences that Trump has been doing every afternoon for the first, you know, five minutes or so, he'll speak in complete sentences and, and sound semi-coherent like a grown-up. And then when he opens it up to questions with the press, that's when it just devolves into, um, you know, a full-on campaign rally. Um, but so, yeah, I think you see people around Trump, whether in the right-wing media or inside the White House, uh, who have been trying to steer him uh, to actually deal with this crisis before, um, you know, it, it, it takes out, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. One of the things about Trump I've always believed is as much as he's a complete and utter sociopath, psychopath, all those things, he also, there's a part of him that I think doesn't want to have the death of of, of millions on his hands. And I think we saw that with him backing down with Iran and North Korea a little bit, like, you know, uh, not pushing China too far. And yet, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's kind of the assumption I've had with him. Um, uh, it's almost like the, the, the bully that, that picks on people until the person, you know, picks back and then uh, cowers a little bit. But it seems like with this, it, that's not the case. What what part of him do you think actually gets the reality of what's taking place and what is what could possibly happen versus just doesn't care and and all he cares about is his reelection campaign and 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 so on. Yeah, you know, I think there there are two things going on. I think I think you're totally right. Um, and I've had people who work in the West Wing describe Trump as sort of a paper tiger and a fake bully that you know he talks a big game, but you know, if you actually confront him, he backs down and, you know, he's actually famously conflict averse. And, you know, he only fires people on his reality show. In real life, he, you know, is always scared to actually be the one to fire uh, someone. So uh, a lot of that is just this, this character he's created. You know, I think with the coronavirus, part of it is it's been this slow motion nightmare that has been unfolding since um, the beginning of the year. And, um, and so, you know, at any moment in time, it's hard, or I guess what I'm saying is it's, he's able to be in denial about the scale of the problem because, you know, exponential, the viruses that grow exponentially early in, in the growth curve, they're small numbers. And so you can delude yourself to think that this is not as big of a deal as the epidemiologists are saying it's going to be. And so I think, you know, part of this has been he has been wanting to keep the stock market at its records. I mean, that was going to be the crux of his reelection campaign. And I think he was uniquely focused from everyone I talked to who deals with him um, on, on keeping the stock market uh, at its highs. And it was only when, if you notice, I think on February 25th, 
is when um, a senior CDC official held a conference call for reporters and uh, she briefed uh, the, the press on how serious this was going to be. And the stock market fell like 900 points that day. And that was like one of the first you know, real days that Trump started to engage with this. He, that's when he convened the task force. He appointed Mike Pence to, to be in charge. And so, I mean, he touts his closing the border uh, with China in January as like, oh, this very early move. But the reality was the federal government did, did almost nothing until the end of February when it was undeniable that the virus was taking off. And so I think, you know, a lot of this has just been, you know, his own wish fulfillment that this would just go away. You have reported about the the inner turmoil or whatever you want to call it inside the White House where, you know, first Mike Pence is put in charge and then Jared is put in charge and then Jared asks his his sister-in-law's father who's a doctor to post on Facebook, you know, how to how to take on a a, a international uh pandemic and, you know, there's all this craziness going on. Is there, you know, we've watched Fauci and um he's like the glimmer of hope on the, on the edge of the uh, of the tundra. Is there from the sense you get from people you talk to inside the White House is there someone who is actually in charge or is it is it almost like a game of tug of war where the experts get to pull a little bit and then the Trump lunatics get to pull a little bit and and we're just seeing the kind of the middle of the rope? I think it depends on you know what aspect of the crisis response we're we're looking at. I think you know on the nuts and bolts of you know getting FEMA to get materials uh, to the various states and, you know, mostly New York because we're New York is the epicenter right now. You know, a lot of that is done out of Mike Pence's team and, and he's in charge. Um, you know, Jared, for, you know, all of his talk of, you know, being in charge of solving every problem, he has not wanted to roll up his sleeves and actually do the nitty gritty of getting government to work. I mean, the things that he's working on from the people I talk to are these kind of pie in the sky, you know, tech ideas of maybe there's some experimental treatment in Silicon Valley that can stop this. Or um, uh, he's been talking to CEOs. I've heard he's been having a lot of conversations with Jeff Bezos about ways Amazon might be able to, you know, organize their supply chain to help the virus, you know, to uh, distribute um, materials to stop the virus. So, you know, Jared loves to do the kind of the vanity, the CEO, um, glad-handing part of the response. Uh, but actually, the you know, real grunt work is being done out of Pence's, Pence's office. And, you know, and then, and then you have Trump, right? So you have Trump on top of it all, you know, upending uh, what should be uh, a very orderly process. You know, we saw that this week when he just announced, and as I reported at Monday and others did, he, he, you know, he had been hearing from business leaders over the weekend, and he just announced that, you know what, maybe we should just open up the economy in two weeks and just let this thing rip. And it was only after there was, you know, massive outcry and all these speculation that Fauci was going to quit or be fired that he walked it back and said, oh, well, maybe we'll do something around Easter and maybe it will only be in certain parts of the country. So, you know, you have a situation where people in the White House are, you know, doing their day to day jobs, trying to stop uh, this pandemic. And then you have Trump on top of it all, you know, upending the plans, uh, you know, basically just because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. (laughs) 
you have been uh, tweeting a lot um, about and getting, uh, you know, your, those tweets have gone viral in certain quadrants of the world about how, you know, these pressers that Trump is doing on a daily basis, which are filled with just complete and utter bullshit, um, how they've become almost like state TV and... Uh, and, you know, some of the networks have been kind of struggling with what to do if they could, let's say some of the networks, excluding Fox, uh, what to do when it comes to how to cover these. Should they cover them? Are they just doing what they did again in 2015, just giving Trump free airtime constantly? What's going on inside the media battle to, to try to kind of, um, you know, to to push back on the stuff that Trump is saying that is false um, and mm-hmm. uh, and how to cover it and how to cover the White House and, and how to cover the pandemic and so yeah. on. Yeah. So, you know, at the top of this, I should say I'm a contributor to MSNBC and NBC. So, um, you know, I'm not involved in any of their coverage decisions. So I'm just, you know, looking at this as, you know, both a journalist myself and as someone who's covered the media. And what I think is so devious that, that Trump is doing is that he has essentially hijacked um, the the media system that we had um, for how governments communicate to the public during crises. I mean, we have a longstanding tradition in this country of the president of the United States addressing the nation during moments of great national import. And no one will argue with that. I don't think anyone would argue with Trump's um, uh, with anyone would argue with Trump's ability to do that. That is perfectly within the mandate of his office. I think but what Trump does that is so diabolical is that he then uses that platform, which is in good faith that the American people extend to him, and then uses it for his own campaign ends and starts talking about the 164 miles of the, quote, big, beautiful wall that he's built. Or if anyone else was in office during the coronavirus, we wouldn't have a country left. I mean, these have become surrogates for his campaign rallies, and it forces the media into this impossible decision, because if CNN or MSNBC would cut away from these, you know, uh, press conferences when they devolve into propaganda, they would be, you know, bashed by the right wing as, you know, biased and as, you know, using their editorial judgment to censor the president. And so they're they're either going to get bashed by the right wing for not covering the the press conference, or they're going to allow Trump to, you know. Uh, spin misinformation um, by carrying it live. And I, I think both are terrible uh, outcomes. But I think I, I think the media should not be worried about being attacked by the right wing. They're going to attack the media no matter what we do, not in good faith. And so I think I think producers should use editorial judgment. Once the president has stopped giving updates about the crisis, you know, the first five minutes or so of these press conferences, you know, have some substance to them. I think if he starts to talk about irrelevant things to the um, coronavirus response, I think it's all it's perfectly within the mandate and the purview of of the news networks to cut away and to fact check things that he has said. I don't think just because it's the coronavirus that we have to give Trump a free platform to talk for as long as he wants to talk on topics that don't have to relate to what we're all going through. One thing that's always been I found fascinating um especially in this moment with the uh, with the way the administration has kind of approached this from a media perspective is that you kind of have a different voice from from everyone it, it used to be that 
you know, if Kellyanne Conway goes on Fox or MSNBC or if Trump goes on or anyone from any of the administration uh, go on, they are constantly saying the same thing. They're, they're, there's almost like a pact of what they're saying. But yet in, in light of what's going on now, you've got, you know, just looking – I think it was yesterday alone, you had, you know, NEC director Larry Kudlow saying that this is pretty close to contained and airtight on CNBC. And then you have, you know – Trump at his press conference saying, you know, uh, we're going to open the country up again. And then at the same time, you have uh, Dr. Fauci on CNN and uh, he's saying he's disputing both of them and saying you don't get to make the timeline. The virus gets to make the timeline. Is is it that there's kind of like a bit of a free for all or is it that is or is this intentional that they're focusing on? trying to get different messages out? It feels like, no, no, you know, the, I, yeah, the, I think the, you really, you've you really hit on this, and I think this is, and I tweeted this the other day, what I find really so terrifying about what we're going through is the fact that there is seemingly no coherent message coming from the White House about a orderly, methodical response to how we're going to get through this you know, generational crisis. And the fact that none of us can accurately say, and you know, I covered the, I covered Trump world for a living, and I, I can't accurately say what the thinking is inside the government um, because it's changing all the time, I think makes it so anxiety-producing, at least speaking for myself, of just going through this as a citizen and not feeling like the, the leadership of this country has really a handle on what they're doing and a strategic plan for dealing with this. I mean, Trump is making decisions based on his, you know, re-election prospects and his obsession with the stock market and his own magical thinking. I mean, I tweeted this the other day, you know, Trump's family pastor when he was growing up in Queens was Norman Vincent Peale, uh, who famously wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And that book has become like a manifesto for Trump. And it's pretty much guided his entire philosophy his whole life of just pretending things are going to be great. And even if your casinos are going bankrupt, like it's all going to work out. And that's, you know, fine and good when you're talking about the business world. But when you're talking about, you know, viruses that are going to affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, this isn't all just going to work itself out. And you need to have a serious, coherent, methodical approach to dealing with it. And that is why I think Fauci has emerged as the sort of hero of this crisis, because he's really the only one um, who is involved in this issue that at least I and everyone I talk to feel like he is making decisions based on science uh, and judgment rather than your own Trump's own craven political interests. And I just, you know, wake up hoping every day that, you know, he's not going to be fired or just quit, that he's kind of a, uh, a safety valve that we have to keep the whole thing from melting down. It feels like, I mean, he doesn't feel like someone who's going to quit. If he was going to quit, he was he would have done that a few weeks ago um, or at least a week ago. But it doesn't feel like, I think that there's a kind of a little bit of a promise here that, you know, that Trump doesn't feel like he could fire him. The backlash would be kind of astounding, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think he knows that. And, um, and there was both... Um, on both of their parts and effort over the last you know, day or so to walk back the speculation that there was real conflict between them. I think, you know, one thing I want to talk to um, is also just the counter 
point between Trump's handling of this and Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. Um, because I think yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, there is, you know, and you, you know this because you're living out in, in L.A., you know, Hollywood has come to a standstill. And so, you know, Americans are starved for new things to watch. And now we have these kind of dueling television shows. We have you know, the real world show at 11 o'clock in the morning when Cuomo gives his press conferences about what's happening in New York. And then we have the like completely fake fantasy reality show at five o'clock or six o'clock when Trump comes on. And I think just the contrast between the mess, those messages uh, shows this kind of split screen world we're living in. Um, and I've, I found again, just as a citizen, Cuomo's press conferences to be, you know, reassuring, calming, you know, he, he tells us what he knows. He tells us what he doesn't know. Uh, he says he's relying on the scientists. And so, um, that is what, uh, that is what, um, I think has been another thing to emerge out of this horrible time is that, you know, Cuomo has demonstrated himself to be a real leader. So, uh, last couple of questions for you. Um, and one is, is in regards to that, uh, to Cuomo, um, I, uh, I have long thought that I don't think Biden should have been the nominee. Clearly, it wasn't my decision. Um, I felt like, look, he's a very, he's a good guy. He's very accomplished. Uh, he's been doing this for fifty years, and he is seventy-seven years old. You know, he could be running for a second term at eighty-two, eighty-three. He, it's he, and you know, quite frankly, like not to. He stutters and misses things and things like that. And I think that um, a lot of people I've spoken to feel that way. Um, two parts to this question is one is the first part is, is there a chance there's been talk this week that, uh, you know, Cuomo, given how impressive he's been during this and that this is not going to go away probably by November, is there a chance that he could be a draft nominee, do you think, with the uh, uh, Democratic Party? You know, I think... That would, there's, you know, kind of the House of Cards TV version of that. And then there's the reality. I mean, for that to happen, it would have to be a brokered convention. And on a second ballot, the party would have to, you know, bring Cuomo in. And I just don't see that necessarily happening. Although, again, this year, we're only a few months into 2020, and it's proved to be completely insane and apocalyptic already. So, you know, the fact that Joe Biden wouldn't end up the Democratic nominee after seeming to have consolidated the party is also, you know, we can't discount that. Okay, so the the next question and my uh, my last question, and uh, I've asked a lot of people this question, and I've been asked it, and I don't know the answer. But does the coronavirus and the way that Trump has handled it affect Trump and his potential uh, bid for re-election, or does it not? And the, and the, and just to preface this, you know, when I look at the the his approval rating, it's up into the fifties and sixties, depending on which polls you look at. Um, you know, he he, I'm sure his Fox TV viewers think he's doing a great job. Um, do you think that that this helps him win? Or I mean, to me, it just shows. You know, for a long time, we had this. There was always this uh, explanation, and people were were tweeting it this week and sharing it. Um, you know, on Instagram and elsewhere, that uh, the, the 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 quote by Hillary Clinton, where she said, "You know, this isn't the guy you want in charge if if you have a real 
a real issue that you have to deal with. And as we're seeing, this is his first real issue that he has to deal with. And it's a massive one. What is the perspective that if he wins or doesn't win the re-election as a result of this? You know, I think that is a great question I've thought in my sleepless nights as my anxiety about coronavirus <laughs> keeps me up. I, I, I mull that. I think about that scenario. And I think it all, a lot of it comes down to ultimately how much death and American carnage, to borrow a Trump phrase, ends up happening with the coronavirus. I think right now, um, the real destruction and pain and, and, and uh, fatalities um, that have happened are happening in places that not to be um, I'm not trying to minimize it, but these just aren't places that would ever vote for Donald Trump. So politically, I don't, you know, his, his, his voters are not being affected in a very severe way yet by the coronavirus. And then you have Fox News, which has propped Trump up. And then this is circles back to what we talked about, why those press conferences that become campaign rallies are, are so um, dangerous is because you know, if you just keep the sound down, you see Trump standing up there behind the seal of the White House at the lectern, taking questions. He's acting presidential, if you discount the words coming out of his mouth, but just the visual alone. And, you know, having written so much about Roger Ailes over the years, uh, I've learned to really respect the power of the visual. And that image of Trump playing president is, is hard to erase from a lot of people's minds. And so if he is somehow able to to dodge the bullet and keep the coronavirus from spiraling out of control. I mean, there is a scenario in which in, he comes out of this um, with higher approval ratings and a much better chance at being reelected, as, as hard as it might be for us in New York and L.A. and, and places on the coast to imagine that. Um, I think that's the reality that we all have to begin to really process. And, and I think it's uh, I think, again, but the wild card is that if this takes off and we're seeing it in Louisiana starting to and, and, and Georgia, uh, if the coronavirus you know, spreads throughout Trump country, you know, I think all bets are off because it's really hard to say, you, you know, you're making America great again or you're keeping America great, you know, when your voters are dropping dead. And so that's going to be, I think, for Trump, the real test. And we're still, you know, New York is as Cuomo says, is still two weeks away or so from the peak of um, of their outbreak. And the rest of the country is two to four weeks behind New York and Washington and, and San Francisco. So, you know, we're not there yet. We're not out of the woods. It's way too early to say. But I I think that's the, the political wild card for Trump is if this takes off uh, in the middle of the country. All right. Well, on that note, let's see what happens in the next 17 years until next week. Um, Gabe, thank you as always for joining us and uh, giving us an inside look of what's going on out there and, and stay safe. You too, Nick. Stay safe. Take care. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Don, welcome to the show. I, I'm I'm really upset because we were going to this. This was scheduled for an in-person um, I know. podcast, which of course is now no longer the case. You're Skyping in. Where are you right now? Are you on like a, a, a substation or in a bunker or <laughs> I'm, I'm in a converted garage in rural Southern California, about a minute up a dirt road from my house, which in, so the converted garage is my office. 
So that's where I am. And you're you're quarantined. You're safe. I am. I am. All good. Yep. Yep. I, listen, you know, I, I'm doing what I usually do as I sit here by myself and make stuff up, you know. So <laughs> to that extent, the quarantine isn't a lot different than my, you know, regular life. So we, there's so many things I want to talk to you about today. And um, I want to get to your new book and your past books. Um, sure. But I feel uh, we, we must begin where the news is. Um, yeah. And it's it's an ever-changing, terrifying scenario that you probably – couldn't make up um, if you had tried. And it's almost just surreal how how quickly it's all taking place. And one thing that is so fascinating to me when I look at where we are now is, is how quickly, I mean, 10 days ago, people were still kind of going to work and restaurants, and now um, that is no longer the case. And yet you have, um, uh, you have a, an administration that is making very perplexing decisions. Right now, Donald Trump is talking about getting everyone back into the workforce and just getting everything going back again in a couple of weeks. It, am I missing something or, uh, <laughs> about about their approach to this whole thing? As we look at like the numbers in New York City, which are doubling by the day, there's yeah. 25,000 people that have it, You know, hundreds of people dying. What what do you think is going on? Listen, if you're missing something, I'm missing it too. I'm afraid that that my interpretation of this is quite cynical, but I also think accurate, is that he cares more about the economy and how it reflects his own wealth, but also, of course, getting reelected on a strong economy than he cares about the health of the people that he swore to serve. So when you're so you're 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 obviously you know. Uh, anyone who follows you on Twitter knows you are quite vociferous about just how diabolical of a president Donald Trump is. It, let's take a step back for a second here. And people ask me this question constantly, and they say, does this affect his chances of reelection? And it's like the one thing I cannot – I don't know how to answer because you still look at his approval ratings. They're still the same. Uh, in fact, some of them have actually gone up. We, we can kind of explore if that's just an anomaly or if that's a reality. Um, yep. But do you think that you know when we're when our side of the world is sitting there looking at this and we're saying like this has been handled diabolically, and his side of the world is looking at it, uh, are they seeing that he's doing an amazing job? Do they do they forget the fact that he called it a hoax and believe that he's he know he didn't do that now because he's saying he didn't like? What do you think – how does this play out as far as his, his election bid goes? Yeah, are we at war with Eurasia or East Asia? You know, it's, it's positively Orwellian. Uh, I, think, I think it will affect his reelection chances. I do. I, I, I don't know. I, listen, his hardcore supporters are his hardcore supporters, and it's like a cult. They, they will make whatever excuse that they need to make or believe whatever they need to believe to reinforce uh, their faith. Uh, but I think it will have an effect on those swing voters that voted for him in 16. And, and I think that those people are going to look at this debacle and, and see it for what it is. They're incompetent and corrupt and vote appropriately. When you look at the, um, you know, I'm, the way that the Trump administration has handled this and you look back at the way other administrations have handled, you know, swine flu and H1N1 and so on. It seems like there's this kind of oscillating back and forth uh, with this one where 
you know, it's almost like someone who's, who doesn't know if they should put their foot on the gas or the brakes. And, uh, and you know, we, it's both, it's two extremes. Do you think that, that, you know, there's the one minute where it's a hoax, there's the next minute where it is a, everyone's got to go inside, millions of people are going to die. It's the next minute where it's like, let's get the economy back to where it was and, and just kind of deal with the consequences. Do you think that the, the Trump can get people to go outside? I mean, I know if he says like, all right, that's it, we're all getting back to work. I'm not leaving my house. <laughs> like, <laughs> is it, 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 does he have the power to be able to convince Americans to say, oh, okay, uh, it's over, I'm going to go outside? Or is it just going to, I have this theory that like half the country would be like, oh, cool, I'm going to go outside and and the other half won't. And it's like, maybe that's our way we take back the Senate. J- just kidding. But like, it, does he have the power to do that? Or is or, or how does it play out, do you think? Uh, I think he does have the power to persuade a certain number of Americans to go out there uh, because uh, it's, A, he, he seems to be able to persuade them about just about anything, but also because it's a seductive argument. We all want to get out. We'd all like to resume our lives. We're all, you know, nervous about the economy. Uh, what I would say, though, is if if you're going to make a mistake, make it on the side of caution and not on the side of recklessness, because one is fixable and the other isn't. Go go on about that and how explain more. Well, if look, if you make a mistake and say, hey. It's all right. It's all over. Go out. Go to restaurants. Go to your jobs. Go, go to amusement parks and breathe on each other. And you're wrong. That's an uncorrectable mistake. If you err on the side of caution and say, hey, we better stay in place for another few weeks or whatever it takes and shut down the economy and all of that. While that has serious consequences, those consequences are repairable or reparable, I guess, is the actual word. So if that's the the choice you have to make, the binary choice you have to make, you make it on the side of caution. So to me, that's that's simple logic. Mm. You you can argue we'll do serious damage to the economy and people are hurting economically and, and all of that is true. There are serious consequences and pain involved with shutting this down, but they are fixable. Now, I haven't seen the news in the last two hours because I've been doing interviews, so I don't know where we are with the Senate bill. Maybe you can inform me. But those are things we can repair. What you cannot repair is death. Yeah, and I think that that's what's so worrying if you get it wrong, you can never repair it. So you shouldn't yeah. ought to be doing it. Well, so one of the things that I am curious about and I've been asking a lot of experts about is, um, you know, how people think this is going to play out. And the thing that I said in my podcast last week was that no one has has a complete answer. Right. But, <clears throat> you know. I saw you. You had um, referenced online uh, the the actually quite brilliant article in the New York Times, uh, which was about how the virus could be stopped um, with harsh steps. And and we see in Asian countries where there you know there is less quote unquote freedom uh, than there is in America, and they're able to track people and and uh, yeah. and ensure that they stay inside and so on and so forth. And yet in America, freedom freedom become, comes before anything, even sometimes before logic. Um, maybe not sometimes a lot of the time before logic. And 
And I'm curious, given all the things that you've read and people you've spoken to and so on and so forth, do you have a theory on how this might play out or a couple of theories? I really don't. I'm sorry to disappoint. Uh, it depends, of course, on on how we respond to it. Look, you know, it, one of the claims of of fascism is competence and efficiency. Right now, we have the worst of of all possible worlds. We have an incompetent administration that leans toward fascism. And and I am concerned as to what freedoms we might lose with this guy, with the coronavirus as an excuse. Having said that, uh, if we're going to use war analogies and war metaphors for this, then, then we should follow through on that. And America in the past has adjusted itself to crises such as wars, such as depressions, and come up with solutions. And these solutions have always had uh, pain attached to them, sacrifice attached to them. And that might very well be the case here. And if we're willing to endure that and undertake those sacrifices, I think we will come through this fairly well. It's going to be long term, though. If we're not willing to do that, I think we're going to unloose a, a, a greater catastrophe on ourselves. But I'm not a scientist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I, you know, like everybody else, I, I'm just sort of looking and trying to figure out what's going to happen now. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So one of your recent books, uh, which was part of the cartel trilogy, The Border, um, was a very prescient book at a time when that was what everyone was talking about, when families were being torn apart and so on. And um, Trump, of course, this week tweeted uh, in all caps, uh, this is why we need borders, um, which I think is the most ludicrous thing uh, that may have ever come out of his fingers, period. (laughs) Do you think that I mean, it's just as astounding that like, I don't know if he's just, just dumb or, or I I just honestly don't even know where something like that comes from. But, but do you think that the, um, that he's going to kind of be able to use this as a, as a tool to be able to kind of push his xenophobic, uh, you know, border bashing, um, even more? It'll convince people who are already convinced and then it just gives them more to yap about, you know, it's 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 so ludicrous, though, that that almost any intelligent, sentient human being rejects it out of hand as just garbage science, which is is what it is. So, no, I, I don't think that he is going to be able to lift the xenophobia much higher than he's already lifted it, because I think all he's doing is preaching to his faithful anyway. Yeah, and I think what what was what was so scary about that tweet? This is why we need borders. Was that um, three hundred and seventy thousand people liked it uh, on Twitter, uh, which only entices him to 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 do it even more. Um, you know, I think it's he he sees this as opportunities for himself, and um, and he uh, you know it's it's not in the interest of the people. It's the, in the interest of Donald Trump. It's uh, it really is terrifying to see to see those reactions. Well, it is, but it's all confirmation bias, you know. Uh, we'll see how we come through this again. I, I think that those those voters that voted for him in 2016, I think a lot of them are going to abandon him based on on his handling of this. From your mouth to God's ears, Don. 
<laughs> Let us now pray. <laughs> <laughs> so you were about to um, go on a book tour um, mm-hmm. and uh, for your new book, Broken, um, when this all kind of happened. And um, um, are, you, are you adjusting? I mean, I think that one thing that has been really interesting is um, – I don't know if it's a positive of this or it's or it's just a, a sideways moment. But what's been really interesting, I think, is to see people who have been able to kind of figure ways around doing the things that they need to do. Some some yeah. sad, some not. You know, yep. birthday parties where you know people stand on the curb and sing happy birthday to like an elderly woman, or um, yep. you know, Zoom business meetings. Although there have been some pretty hilarious ones where people didn't realize their camera was on and they like went to the bathroom. Which is just cringeworthy, uh, cringeworthy to watch. <laughs> but um, are you still are you still out there with the book? What do you what, what what's your plan with all this? Yeah, we're launching a virtual book tour. Look, you know, I. I feel badly about this because uh, these independent bookstores, and I was going to do a 20 city tour, most of them, if not all of them, I guess, in independent bookstores. And these appearances are very important to them business wise. And, and these are people that I've had long and in many cases, close relationships with. In other cases, they're, they're places I've never been before that have invited me. So uh, I'm very disappointed and I, I'm concerned about their economic well-being, you know. Uh, so uh, what we've come up with is, is the next best thing, which is a virtual tour, which we'll do on all this various, you know, technology that I'm now just learning uh, and so if I can't be there in person, I'll be there on a screen and people will be able to either ask questions live or, you know, type them in or whatever. And so we'll have some sort of interaction together. You know, I, uh, the reader, you know, without, without the reader, I, I don't have this job that I love. And so I always appreciate the chance to get out there and thank them and meet them and answer questions and have some sort of, you know, human interaction. So uh, we'll be doing this, I think, in in almost every, if not every venue that I was scheduled to go to. And and hopefully it'll it'll be a good thing. Are you is there a way for people to kind of purchase from local booksellers? Like one thing that I've been trying to do is um, as best as I can is 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 you know buy from local restaurants. Um, one thing yeah. that's happened in LA that's been pretty fascinating is there are certain restaurants that have become They've literally turned their restaurants into into little um, grocery stores, uh, so yeah. you can go in and you can buy the fruits and vegetables and the meats that they would have used to cook. Um, and so I've been trying to go to those places um, rather than Whole Foods, which is always a a line and is doing quite well financially. Um, and and are there ways to like support the local booksellers? Like how how do people do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a call them up. You know, some of them are just you buy your book, you know, with a credit card or whatever, and they're leaving it outside you know, and you can come pick it up or they let people in one at a time or they'll mail it to you. You know, so absolutely be in touch with your local bookstore. Uh, find out how they're doing it. They'll always work it out. And, uh, you know, we need to be doing those things. I am. 
you um, speaking of the of of the bookstores? You you one report that came out today um, was that uh, the CDC said that um, on the Princess uh, cruise ships, uh, yeah. the um, the coronavirus virus was still there seventeen days after passengers yeah. left, which is yeah. an insane number. Are you are yep. you like wiping all your stuff down? Are you wiping your book? <laughs> like how how extreme are you taking all this? I'm not, listen, I'm cautious. I'm not going crazy. You know, now again, we live way out in the country on an old ranch. Uh, so we already are fairly isolated. You know, I'm the only person in my office, but yeah, I'll wipe things down, you know? Uh, and, but that's about it. I'm not, I'm not going insane, but you know, I'm being prudent and I'm trying to listen to the scientists and the experts and, and doing what they tell us to do. What if one of the things that I think we all struggle with in times like this is, um, and I'm, you know, it's the thing that it's funny. I, uh, the first week this all happened, um, I was, you know, a little bit of a, uh, on edge, not a little bit, a lot, a lot of bit, bit on edge. And my wife, I have two wife and two little kids and, and, uh, my wife obviously noticed. And, and, uh, I think it was Sunday. Um, she was like, you know, you're, you're like, you seem like you're like really great today. And I was like, yeah, I feel that way. And she's like, you, have you read the news? And I was like, no. And so it's like the more I read, the, yeah. the more of a, a mess I am. How are you, you, you – are you still writing? Are you – like how do you approach your news diet now? Like what what's the approach you take to this? I take the approach that to the greatest extent possible I live my normal life within these limitations. So I, I do what I always do. I, I get up five ish in the morning. And the first thing I do, although it's harder to do now, I find psychologically is I, I look at five or six newspapers, uh, which is not fun, you know, because the, the headlines are, you know, always worse than yesterday's. And then, yeah, I go to work, you know, uh, I come in and I'm working on my next book and, uh, uh, and I do that all day. Now, right now it's a little different because I have a book coming out. So a lot of my days are spent like this with interviews. Uh, but other than that, yeah. And, and then I go home and I, I make dinner and, and my wife, she's laid up right now with some knee surgery. Uh, so, uh, I make dinner and we, uh, sit down and, and eat and usually watch some TV and go to bed, you know? So, it's a quieter kind of life, but not that different from the my typical day. So, are you reading more, or or, or are you trying to like are you, are you? It's the same as what you were before. Are you reading more as as a result of the Trump administration too? No, In, look, ninety percent of my reading is research reading. Uh, mm. It's it's work related reading. Uh, I I don't have as much time as I'd like to have to read for pleasure. Uh, what I typically yeah. do is that uh, every Sunday, all I do is read for pleasure. And that's literally all I do. Uh, so uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I probably am reading a little bit more sort of late afternoon, early evening. I was just rereading uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Farewell, My Lovely, um, for the umpteenth time. Um, reading a book about the Asia Pacific front in World War II for reasons that I can't explain even to myself. Uh, watching some, <laughs> <laughs> watching some movies, you know, I've been catching up with some crime films I've been wanting to rewatch for a while. 
um, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, maybe the most realistic crime film ever made, um, Michael Mann's Thief, uh, They Live by Night, Nicholas Ray's first movie. And, and that's been kind of fun to do that. Do you, um, when you're working on your next book and things like this are taking place around the, around you, do, you, do these things get incorporated in or do you try to keep reality out or like how do you approach that or does it completely depend on what the, what the content is about? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's the latter. It's, it's, it's what the content is about. You know, and I was doing that book, The Border, then everyday events became part of the book because I was writing about our times and the present. And so, you know, I had to uh, account for that. Uh, in the piece that I'm doing now, you know, not so much. I, I don't have any desire at this point to write about the coronavirus or all this. I think it's way too soon. And I'm not a scientist, you know, so I don't have a thorough enough understanding of the underlying science to write anything worth, you know, people reading uh, on a novel length, certainly. So, no, I, I kind of keep it out. But look, it's it's impossible. It's like the old Tolstoy brother thing, you know, go in the corner and don't think about a white elephant. You, you can't do it, you know. And, and so it's around you all the time. I usually have the news on in the background in one form or another. So it's it's hard to keep out. But I think out of my head, but I think I've kept it out of my writing. It might, yeah, it must be really difficult to, <clears throat> I mean, for me, it's part of the writing, so it's, it sure. all plays into it, but at, yeah. but at the same time, I can imagine going to write a novel about something not related to this while, while the world is on fire it must be difficult to kind of t to dislodge it from your brain, you know? Yeah, it is. But just, just as reading can be escapist, you know, writing can be escapist also. And as a writer, I think you, you have to get lost in your story a little bit. You have to get lost in your characters. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's five o'clock and you, you've been with these people who don't really exist for several hours, but you've been totally absorbed in their world. Uh, and, and you do forget about what's going on around you. One of the things that's, um, that's been really interesting about this moment in time is that, um, you know, gives you a perspective on life that you mm -hmm. didn't necessarily have before. Um, sometimes for some people, for a lot of people I know, you know, it's like, um, you know, we get so caught up in the like, got to get this done, got to get this done. You know, it's like yeah. the rat race of these things and, um, and being home with your family and not being able to leave and things like that, I think. And also re recognizing that you could get the virus and you could die, yeah. um, quite easily, no matter what age group you're in. Um, is sobering. Uh, is, has it been that way for you or, or were you already living your best life <laughs> as a writer out in the country? Listen, I, I, I love the life I've been given, you know, um, I'm, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. I'm so grateful that, that the world has given me that. Uh, so basically, yeah, I, I've been living my best life, but, but yeah, you know, I have been more aware because this is an existential crisis. And uh, Saturday and Sunday morning, uh, it's been pouring rain here most of the time, but but it was clear Saturday and Sunday morning. And uh, I, I did a walk that I haven't done often enough. Very, very pretty walk up this little dirt road near us, did not see another human being. Uh, and 
really felt and appreciated the beauty of it and reminded myself, you know, you, you just need to make the space to do this more often. Now, the, the great thing about being a writer is that you can do those walks and those runs and things and still call it work because a lot of times, you know, the characters are still talking to you and you can think about the next chapter or rethink the last chapter. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm on these walks, you know, creating dialogue and talking to myself, which, you know, makes me look pretty strange, I guess. Uh, so I can kind of have my cake and eat it too, but I, I think you're really onto something. And, and if there is the, you know, cliched silver lining behind this cloud, that might be it that we might mm -hmm. come to a greater appreciation of the more basic and therefore important things in life. Well, when my kid who's now 30 was little, and I was working hard at being a novelist. I never shut my door, ever. Uh, and if he wanted to go out and play or toss a ball around or, you know, go out and be Han Solo and Luke Skywalker together, I always put down what I was doing and went out and did that. Because my philosophy was that the world is not going to suffer if I write one or two less books. But he would suffer and I would certainly suffer if I didn't spend that time with him. And I feel the same way now, you know, but I, I think mm -hmm. that this this crisis has a way of bringing that home to all of us. The other day, Jean, my wife and I spent an hour and a half on a, you know, um, a FaceTime with some dear friends in Rhode Island we hadn't seen for several months. And God, it did us a lot of good. Yeah, I've been I've been doing that with uh, with friends of mine where we, you know, have Zoom, Zoom dinners and drinks and, yeah. and you know, messaging, messaging with people that I haven't really spoken to in a long time. And I think, you know, and just taking those moments to kind of, you know, the hardest part is, of course, getting away from the news. But um, but yeah, and without question. All right, yeah. I have a couple couple more questions for you, and then we'll let oh, you sure. get back uh, to your writing. Um, you're you're sixty six now, is that right? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you've that you've happen, been man. you've been I, through. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to all of us. Don't worry. Uh, so you've I been through it. a number of of presidents and administrations, and yeah. so on, and have 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 clearly felt very passionate about this one, um, more so than I think any right um if i'm not correct if i'm not wrong do you um do you think that the effects of the trump administration are we going to feel those for for years for decades do you think that there's do you think he's going to win again i mean what where where are you with with him right now and this administration the damage that he has done to this society in three short years is enormous in terms of our psyche, in terms of our relationships to each other, uh, in terms of our international relationships. Uh, I think that those effects will be felt, unfortunately, for decades. To answer the second part of your question, I think he is going to lose this election. I think he deserves to lose this election. I think he has to lose this election. I think it's an existential issue for this country because I cannot imagine what we would look like after four more years of this incompetence and corruption and incipient fascism. 
So uh, I think that uh, that we, if I may, uh, will win this next election. Uh, we have to. Are you doing anything particular to try to help that? Are you are you going to go? I mean, I don't think we're allowed to knock on doors anymore. But if we are at some point, <laughs> are you is is there anything that you're going to try I, to do to to push this I, forward? Donated the maximum allowable to the likely uh, candidate. Uh, and we'll see what happens in November. I will do whatever I can and whatever I'm able to do. Well, I hope that uh, it's funny. Most people I speak to uh, with a, say with a very pessimistic, oh, my God, uh, that they don't think that, that, that they think he may win. This was also before the coronavirus. So... You know, I think that um, I think he's in a he's in a very difficult situation because he wants to try to get the economy back to where it was before the election so that he can run on that. That was always the thing everyone said. They said, you know, if the economy is 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 good, then we'll probably the Democrats will probably lose. And if the economy starts to slow down, then the Democrats uh, could actually win. And, you know, it didn't just slow down. It, it, it hit a, it hit a wall at, at 150 miles an hour. And I think that, you know, he's in a situation where he cannot get it back to where it was. And if he tries to push it too quickly, um, he could end up killing a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah. uh, you know, it's not, I, I just don't think that, um, I don't think that he's in, it's for the first time I think he is in a situation where uh, there's no right answer, whereas before I think he had lots of different answers. Um, uh, yeah, but I think, you know, I, I hope you're right. I truly, truly do. Well, listen, I agree with you on that analysis. Look, we can be pessimistic, and there's a lot to be pessimistic about, and I understand it. But pessimism is not a choice. Pessimism is a suicide pact. If, if you think everything is going to go badly, what? how do you get up in the morning, and what do you do if you do? And so it's pessimism's easy, and, and I, I fall to it more than I'd like to admit. But it's not a choice that that we can make. It's it's yep. it's too irresponsible to make that choice just to throw our hands up and give up and feel sorry for ourselves. I'm sorry. That's not acceptable. We can't do that. And we we have to do what we can do uh, to achieve the outcome that we need. Yeah, totally agree. Don, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, tell people to where to get your book so that they can get it at the right places and help support these little bookstores. Like, how do they how do they go about doing that? Yeah, you know, go on Google, see what your local bookstore is, and give them a call. Or go on their website, and I, I'm sure they'll be happy to sell you one of my books. Um, and, uh, and when this is all said and done and we're allowed to, uh, socially interact again, we will have you back on the podcast in person Thank you. Uh, for a longer, that. more in-depth conversation. I, I would love that. Please invite me. I'll be there. Thanks to my guests today, Gabe Sherman and Don Winslow. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. 
You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to all my sponsors this week. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Don't go outside. And stay nice and cozy and self-quarantined. And maybe go listen to some more Inside the Hive podcasts. I'll see you all next week.